Would you turn to Isaiah 53, please? Years ago, I uh, read a little book entitled Peter Parsons' Diary. I've uh, forgotten the uh, full name of the author, though I'm sure his name is Peter. And uh, he was a parson, and he was writing about some of his experiences in ministry. And he said there, there are two ways to deliver a, ministry, uh, deliver a message. One is to bring the completed message uh, into, uh, into the audience and show them the result of your work. The other and better way is to bring all the raw materials into a room and uh, everyone work on the material together. I, I wish we could do that. With Isaiah 53, it's impossible in this setting. But it's really the only way that we can adequately understand this, uh, this text. It is pregnant with significance. I just spent two two-hour sessions with our interns going over these 15 verses with a fine-tooth comb. And uh, I learned so much from that, uh, that experience. I wish that all of us had that kind of time. And... And that uh, sort of approach to, uh, uh, to this song, uh, it is, in my opinion, the most outstanding example of prediction in the Old Testament. But uh, the way the material is, is treated is, uh, is unique. Uh, Luke, uh, in his history of the early church, tells us an interesting story about uh, a young black official from the court of Candace, who was the queen of Ethiopia. He was a convert to Judaism, uh, what is called in the New Testament a God-fearer, a Gentile who had, who had uh, become uh, uh, a follower of Judaism. And he made the long pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. And while he was there, he bought a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as he was returning to Ethiopia, he was reading from the scroll. In those days, uh, people were only semi-literate. Most people were. And uh, reading was a very painful process. They, uh, like children, sounded out every, every word. And he apparently was reading from the scroll and reading out loud because Philip, the evangelist, who was on, on that same road, overheard him and ran to the chariot and asked him if he understood what he was reading. He was reading verses 7 and 8 of our, of our text. And the man said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And uh, Luke said that from that text, Philip began to preach the good news about Jesus. This is the, uh, the fourth of the so-called servant songs. We've looked at uh, three that appear uh, in, uh, before this, uh, this section in the, in the book of Isaiah. And here the the servant steps out of the shadows, becomes very clear to whom the, uh, the song refers. Uh, as F.B. Myers said, there's only one brow on which this crown of thorns will fit. It's our, it's our Lord Jesus. There's no question about its, uh, its application. There are five stanzas to the song. The first is actually in chapter 52, the last three verses, verses 13 through 15. And here we're introduced to the servant. In 53, 1 through 3, uh, we're told of his rejection. In verses 4 through 6, the reason for his rejection. In verses 7 through 9, 
his resignation, his willingness to be subject to rejection. And finally, in the last three verses of chapter 53, the results of his suffering. Let me begin reading with uh, 52.13. See, my servant will be successful. You may remember the King James translation of this phrase, my servant will prosper. If you have a New International Version, the footnote or the side note has uh, that interpretation, my servant will be successful. The word actually has the idea of someone acting wisely, acting, acting judicially, acting in such a way that uh, what he accomplishes is, is worthwhile. It's good. He is successful in what he does. And the parallel line spells that out even further. He will be raised. He will be lifted up and highly exalted. I think Paul is echoing this phrase in Philippians 2 when he says, because of the willingness of the servant to empty himself and lay aside the independent use of his attributes as God and to become a servant even to the extent of death, uh, the death on a cross, the Father has highly exalted him. Actually, uh, almost a parallel phrase to uh, the way the text puts it. Highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what is it that Jesus did that made him su such a success? He didn't win a gold medal in the Olympics. He never became the CEO of a Fortune 500 country company. What what? can we say about, uh, about his life that was so successful? He grew up in a kind of cultural backwater in the ancient Near East. He was unheard of, or unnoticed, overlooked by and large. What made him so successful? Well, he dealt with the issue that has plagued you and me since the very beginning of our lives and has plagued the human race from the beginning of history. It's this whole matter of a conscience, a bad conscience. Someone has, uh, has described conscience as, uh, conscience as that still, small voice that makes you feel still smaller. It's that nagging uh, voice within that tells us that we've gone wrong. Uh, my wife's uh, Toyota has a little red light on the dash that's been uh, staring me in the face for the last month. It comes on when the brake drums need to be uh, replaced. And uh, I've been ignoring it, trying to ignore it. But every time I drive her car, which is seldom, that red light blinks at me and reminds me that I need to get that car in the shop. That's very much like our conscience. We can override our conscience. We can do things that, uh, that our conscience tells us we shouldn't do, but then we can't enjoy them afterwards. It keeps telling us that we've gone wrong. And all of us have things in, in the back of our minds, in our past history, things that we've done and said ways that we've acted, people that we've mistreated, mistakes that we've made, moral shortcuts that we've taken, detours that we can't get out of our minds. We try to forget, but we, we can't, and this conscience keeps nagging us. I've mentioned before Dr. Menninger's book, Whatever Happened to Sin, and in the preface to that book, he talks about the, the uh, prophet in Chicago on uh, Chicago's south side that points at people as they walk by and says, guilty. And, and his friend who was walking with him, the, the prophet pointed at him and said, guilty. And the man said to, to Menninger, how did he know? We just know. We know. We know that we've gone wrong. And, and who can solve that, uh, that problem? Well, our, our Lord did. He was successful in doing the thing that nothing, 
that no one had ever been able to do before. He solved the problem of a defiled conscience. In summary form, this is the way he did it in verses 14 and 15. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. And then you'll notice in the, in the New International Version, there's a dash after that line. And what follows is parenthetical. It explains why they were shocked, why they were nonplussed, why they were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations. You have to connect the first lines of verses 14 and 15. Just as there were many who were shocked at him, so will he sprinkle many nations. Now, the shock was over his disfigurement. He was beaten beyond recognition. They blindfolded him and struck him with uh, rods, which they mockingly, mockingly uh, described as ruler scepters, and, and uh, taunted him, jeered at him, said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell, tell us who struck you. And they battered him with their fists, and they lashed him with uh, the Roman cat of nine tails. And uh, as he bore the cross along the Via Della Rosa, he stumbled many times and fell. And then they rammed the crown of thorns down over his head and by the time he was stretched out on that cross he was unrecognizable so battered and bloody uh, was he and it's that that the prophet sees 720 years before it happened he makes a comparison the measure of his suffering is the measure of sprinkling you understand what he's saying it's the same thing that Paul is saying you cannot outsin the grace of God. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Any Jew would understand this idea of sprinkling because that was the way the blood of the sacrifice was applied. An animal, a spotless animal, animal without blemish was sacrificed. And uh, the blood was taken from that animal and then it was sprinkled on the altar and, and on the people, on the priests, on the tabernacle as a way of signifying the application of that sacrifice. It was one thing to make the sacrifice. It was another thing to make it available to the people. Interesting incident in, um, that, that Moses records in, in Exodus 25. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the law, handed them to the people. The people said in a great blast of egotism, everything that God has commanded we will do. And Moses knew full well that they would not be able to comply. And so he sacrificed an animal at that, at that juncture. And he sprinkled the book. And he sprinkled the people as though to say, you will not keep it, you will fail, you will sin, but you're forgiven even before you, you try to keep the law. That's why uh, the author of the book of Hebrews says in his, uh, his book, uh, Hebrews 10, he says that, that that sprinkling is what cleanses us from a guilty conscience, you see. Now, in summary form, we're told in this introduction to look at the servant, look full in his face, because the measure of suffering that he endured is the measure of our salvation. And as the prophet goes on to say, many who have not heard will understand. I think of the centurion at the foot of the cross who was a thoroughly pagan man, probably a worshiper of Roman or Greek gods. And he stood at the foot of the cross and he had never heard the gospel before. And he looked up at Jesus on the cross and he said, Surely this was the Son of God. He never heard the gospel before. But the coin dropped. It all fell into place. 
when he saw the Lord. Years, years ago, when I was living in California, I led a Young Life Club along with a fellow by the name of Bob Reverts at uh, Coverly High School in Palo Alto. And uh, After a club talk, Bob had been speaking. A young man came up to the front, and uh, he, said, uh, he said, Bob, he said, uh, this, I'm quoting him, he said, this, this fellow Jesus, he was a Jew, wasn't he? And uh, Bob and I nodded, yes. And he said, uh, something happened to him. Well, well, they hung him or something, didn't they? And Bob said, yes, they hung him on a cross for your sin and for mine. And uh, he shook his head and he said, I, I've, I've got to think about that. Now, you see, here's a young man who obviously had never been to church, totally unreligious, non-religious, very secular-thinking young man, had never heard the gospel. But when he saw the Lord, when he saw that suffering servant, he thought, I've got to think about this. It's very often the religious types who take it for granted. And you and I that have heard this story over and over again often take the story very lightly. But those that have never heard it before, on them it has an enormous impact. Just the fact that once and for all, our conscience can be cleansed because the, the servant gave up his, uh, his life. Now, uh, in chapter 53, verse 1, he moves on to the rejection of the servant. Who has believed literally what we have heard? He's uh, contrasting what the Gentiles did not hear. They had never heard the good news about the one who was to come and set things right. But, uh, but the Jews of Isaiah's day, the D Jews of Jesus' day, had, had heard. They had heard. Uh, this, this particular verse is quoted twice in the New Testament and applied once by Jesus and once by one of the writers of the epistles to, uh, to the fact that the, 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 the Jews didn't, didn't understand. They didn't see. Who has believed what we heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the answer was that he was revealed to his own. He came to his own, John says. And uh, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, authority to become the sons of God. In other words, to whom did he roll up his sleeves? To whom did he reveal his power? Well, it was to his own to his own people. But you see, they, they, they were expecting something entirely different. They were expecting the arm of the Lord to be manifest in a, in a militant Messiah who would deliver them from, uh, from the Roman Empire. And they, they did not realize that he would grow up before them like a, like a tender plant. He grew up before him, that is, before God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. I looked out of, uh, of my back uh, door yesterday afternoon and I saw some tiny little green shoots beginning to push their way through the, the hard soil. My bulbs are beginning to, to come up. They may get nipped before too long, but they're putting in an appearance. And uh, I, I thought of this passage. That's the way our Lord came into me. And who would have thought that the arm of the Lord, the, the manifestation of the power of God could be found in this in this tiny infant who was born in Bethlehem and who grew up without uh, fanfare, without, without notice, who labored as a, as a carpenter's uh, helper, who was uh, unheralded and unsung, and uh, who had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Literally, the, the text says there was no look that we should look. In other words, you, you wouldn't 
take notice of him. You, would, you wouldn't take a second look at him. Uh, I, I like these pictures of Jesus uh, uh, that show him uh, you know, sort of rugged, uh, ruggedly handsome person. And Hook, I like Hook's paintings of Jesus. But I wonder sometimes if he was handsome at all. I, I think he may have been very plain. I mean, after all, he identifies uh, with us and the human race, and most of us are downright ugly. And uh, uh, I, I don't think there's anything about him that would attract attention. Uh, it wasn't particularly big. He, there was nothing about him that would particularly draw you to him. He was just very, uh, very ordinary in, in, a, in his appearance. And he was despised and rejected. His brothers and sisters didn't like him. They didn't want him around. They thought he was insane. His, uh, his father, Joseph, may well have died when he was a child because he disappears from the scene. He bore the stigma throughout his life of an illegitimate birth because they never understood uh, his virgin birth. Uh, he, at one point in his life, they said to him, you're not yet 50 years of age. He, he, he was just barely 30 when they said that, which makes me wonder if he didn't look uh, old beyond his years. He's described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with, uh, with grief. He knew, knew grief. We're never told that he laughed in the New Testament. I think he must have, there must have been a great deal of humor there. And you can't read some of his parables and stories without uh, seeing the twinkle in his, in his eye. But uh, he certainly didn't live on the surface of things. He was despised, as we're told. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was familiar with, uh, with suffering. Uh, I've always uh, appreciated this quote of Dorothy Sayers. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrow. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty, and he lived in disgrace, and he thought it was all worthwhile. Now, the, the verses that follow are the reason why he was familiar with suffering. Verse 4, Surely he took our infirmities. Unfortunately, the NIV translates the word that's translated suffering in verse 3 with infirmities in verse 4. It would, you would see the parallelism if they had been consistent. Surely he took our suffering. He carried our sorrows. He's the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He took our suffering and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. Uh, that word stricken is the word that's used in the Old Testament for lepers. They were stricken with leprosy, and that's the origin of the ancient rabbinic idea that the Messiah might well be a leper. Some of them correctly understood this passage. He was not, of course, but we'll see in a moment uh, why that uh, particular uh, term would fit. He was pierced interesting term, pierced for our transgressions. Who would have thought to put that into the text 720 years before our Lord's hands and feet were pierced and his side uh, was pierced by the Roman spear? 
He was crushed, literally ground to powder for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord, emphasis here on the name of the Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. There's an interesting equation that people make, and they made during Jesus' day between suffering and sin. In those days, there was a very clear picture that suffering is always the result of sin. They tied it too closely to individual sin, but they understood that suffering and death is the direct consequence of human sin. Uh, remember the story of the, uh, dis- when the disciples were accompanying Jesus and they saw the man born blind? And they said to Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be blind? Remember Job's miserable friends who kept trying to pin sin on him because he was suffering? Just the opposite of, uh, <clears throat> of uh, Sound of Music and uh, the song, Somewhere in my uh, youth or childhood I must have done something good. There's this idea that if we've done something good, then we deserve a good fate. If we've done something, if we've been wrong, then we deserve wrong. That idea is still ingrained in our minds to some extent, and uh, it was believed in, in that day. And they looked at Jesus, and they said, this man is suffering because of sin. And they saw him on the cross, and they said, this man is being stricken by God because he's an evil, wicked man. And they were absolutely right. But you see, it wasn't for his sin that he was dying, but for ours. You see the pronouns? We thought he was suffering for his sin, but he was suffering for ours. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us us all. Frank Sinatra wrote his book, I Did It My Way, and and it sounds uh, noble and wonderful, but you see, that's the problem with the human race. That's why we get ourselves in the messes that we're in. That's why we destroy our marriages and friendships. That's why the generation gap uh, remains, and uh, that's why we create so much mischief and mayhem for ourselves. It's because we're like sheep and we've gone our own way, all of us. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, see. He was the sin bearer. Oh, he was sinless. There's no question about that. Uh, the, the people that were closest to him, to him, his own disciples, uh, never saw him sin. Not not once. Paul says he was without sin. Uh, Peter says in him was no sin. These these two men were disciples. They were with him. 24 hours a day for three and a half years, and they never saw him sin. There's a couple of interns that I I like to fish with because they're good fly fishermen, and I enjoy going out with them. But it it takes about one day on the stream for them to discover that I am not impeccable. I'm not sinless. They, they, They see right through me shortly. These men were with Jesus Three and a half years under all circumstances, and they never once saw him sin. Uh, everyone tried to pin something on him. They, uh, 
they trumped up charges, they suborned witnesses, they tried their very best to try to find someone who would, who would uh, say that this man had sinned. They couldn't find anyone. Even, uh, you know, they, you talk about Bill Clinton being scrutinized. They, they scrutinized his life every moment of every day. They could not find any occasion of sin. Herod, who hated him. Pilate, who was trying to save his political skin. Both had to say, we don't find any fault in this man. He was utterly sinless. He was the impeccable Lamb of God, blameless, no harm, no sin. As the text tells us later in verse 9, he had done no violence. There was no deceit uh, in his mouth. But he took our sin, you see. He took our sin. Uh, Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I cannot explain how that took place. That, for me, is the most amazing transfer of credit to be recorded anywhere, that all of my sin was placed upon the servant so that I could have all of his righteousness. I tried, I struggled all, all week trying to think of some way to explain this to you, and finally it dawned on me that there, there is no explanation for it. This is what Calvin called the ineffable act, the, the act that cannot be expressed in, in, in words. I, I have a book in my library called An Encyclopedia of Theological Knowledge. It's about this thick, and I've often thought there ought to be a companion vol, volume entitled the, an, an Encyclopedia of Theological Ignorance. And it would, I don't know, maybe five or six volumes about the same size because there's so much that we don't know, so much that we can't describe. All I can say is there was this amazing, this amazing transfer. All of my debits were given to him. All of his credits were given to me. He who knew no sin was made sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died for my sins, past, present, future. I, while I was on my sabbatical, I read a story about a, a man by the name of Shamel who lived during, in the 19th century in Russia. He was uh, with a group of uh, rebels who were hiding out most of the time in the, in the woods. They were resisting the czarist re regime at the time. It was in the 1870s. A very close-knit group, very much like our, uh, uh, some of our patriots during the, our revolution. Uh, if they didn't stand together, they would, they'd, they'd fall apart. And so they clung to each other and very stringent rules, regulations to keep them together. And one day it was discovered that someone was pilfering, stealing, petty theft. And uh, that's very serious because it caused a great deal of suspicion within this uh, group. And uh, so the, uh, the head of the group, Shamel, decreed that when the thief was found, he would receive 50 lashes and... Uh, then it was discovered that it was his mother. And so now he, he was faced with this terrible dilemma. How could he meet the demands of justice and still show love to his mother? And, and he knew he had to do something, and so he had her brought into the, uh, to the middle of the group, and she was tied to the post, and he himself took the, took the uh, lash in his hands, and he started to give her the first lash, and then he ordered that she be cut down, and, and he had himself tied to the post, and he took the lashes that were intended uh, for her. Now, that's, that's an imperfect illustration because here's one person 
taking the responsibility for one other person's uh, sins, but when you come to Jesus, you have a unique death. You have the God-man giving up an infinite life for an infinite number of people, satisfying the demands of, of justice, and yet satisfying the demands of love. And remember that it was God who is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's not that God is saying, here's this awful world, I'm going to punish my son on behalf of the world. It's God himself taking our place on the cross and, and suffering for us. And I believe, uh, some of you may disagree with me, but I believe that Jesus learned the worst of what it meant to be a sinful human being and that he himself went to hell and experienced in some mysterious way that we can never describe eternal separation from God. I think that's what is meant by the cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was not a moment of weakness. It was a moment of truth. It was a great insight into what was actually happening there. It's not fear of death that motivated our Lord. It was fear of God. It was the realization that he was going to experience the wrath of God, and ultimately that's eternal separation. And so I believe our Lord went the limit. He went he went the, the entire way, and he, he paid the price that you and I should have paid. He went, he went to hell for us. Now, I cannot explain that. I simply say that I believe that's what, uh, what occurred. And uh, as Isaiah puts it in, in summary, we're, we're all like sheep that have gone astray. That's how we get in to the problem. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the way we get out. Now, the, the verses that follow 7 through 9 speak of his submission in his suffering, his acts of resignation. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a, a sheep before her shear is a silent, so he did not open his mouth. I can attest to that. I used to raise uh, sheep, uh, Shropshire's, and... Uh, uh, if you've ever been to a shearing, you know what it's like. You just flip them on their back and their eyes bulge out. And you know, you know they're scared to death, but they stiffen up and they, they don't move. They don't say a thing. And you can just shear right down their legs and right across their tummy and, and they don't move. And uh, that's the way it was with our Lord. Now, you stop and think of what happened. Uh, Isaiah gives us a, a glimpse over 700 years before it actually happened. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's a reference to uh, the Roman soldiers seizing him in the garden and then the trial. Everything about that trial was illegal. It was conducted at night, which was illegal. Uh, they passed down the death penalty. They had no right to do so. The Roman Empire had taken that privilege away from, uh, from the Jews. They suborned witnesses, as I said. They had to trump up charges. They had to buy witnesses because no one was willing to to say honestly that he, had, that he had ever sinned. The whole thing was a miscarriage of justice. If you ever had any doubt that the world is an unfair place to live in, then just look at the cross. Because here's a man who, in whom there was no deceit, no guile, who never sinned. And yet he was subjected by oppression and by uh, an unjust trial to a death uh, sentence. And he was cut off. So the word suggests the idea of being cut off before one's time is a premature death. That's a reference to the cross. He went through that whole thing, the Passion Week. And though he spoke, he, as Peter puts it, when he was reviled, he did not revile. He didn't answer back. 
didn't justify himself, didn't defend himself, didn't say, you have no right to do this, I'm innocent. Why? Because he was guilty as charged. He was getting what he deserved. He knew that. See, the reason we get defensive is because we don't think we deserve it. We, we don't see the depth of our depravity. Our Lord didn't defend himself because he knew he was getting exactly what he deserved because he had become sin for us and therefore the judgment uh, was, uh, it was just. There's one nice touch in this, um, in this paragraph, verses 9, verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. That's a reference to the intent of those who crucified him to cast his body on Gehenna, the, gar the Jerusalem's garbage dump, which is what they did to criminals after they were crucified. Their bodies were normally discarded and burned. He was saved that indignity uh, because, as uh, the text tells us, he had done no violence and uh, there, wasn't, there was no deceit in his mouth. The Lord saved him from that, that, uh, that dishonor. But the next line is especially significant. And with a rich man, it's singular, with a rich man in his death. Some of you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Back in 1947, they were discovered. And perhaps one of the most important things about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they demonstrate how accurate our texts really are. It's, 900-year leap from the earliest manuscripts that we had back to 200 B.C., which is the date that they give to the Isaiah scroll. And uh, we discovered that uh, the texts we have, though there were copies of copies of copies, were extremely accurate, almost no, uh, no areas of conflict, just uh, some changes in spelling and a couple of very slight changes. And this is one. This was one of the changes. It's uh, the word that's translated uh, death here in verse 9, by inserting one vertical line in the Hebrew text, they changed that word from death to tomb, which is probably the right rendering. And uh, what Isaiah said is, though he was, it was their intention to burn his body on Gehenna, God spared him because of his sinless nature, and he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea who asked for his body so that, that uh, once, uh, once he had perished, the only hands that touched his body were those that loved him, and they lovingly wrapped his body, prepared it for burial, and they laid him in a rich man's tomb, one that had never been used before. As someone has said, he came from a virgin womb. He was buried in a virgin tomb. Now... Um, the, the psalm ends on this note of the son's exaltation because of the results of his suffering. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Now, isn't that strange that it, it was God's will for him to suffer? We blame uh, so many different groups for the death of of Jesus, we blame the Roman soldiers, we blame the court, the tribunal. Uh, Becky last uh, week said that we were responsible, as Luther said, we carry his nails in our pockets, and all those things are true, but, but ultimately it was God who put the Son to death. He made him to be sin for us, Paul says. Uh, it was the Father's will to put him to death. See, that, that was why there was such a struggle 
in, in the garden between the Father's will and the Son's will. That was a legitimate struggle. That, that caused our Lord enormous pain to have to face into the fact that it was the Father's will for him to suffer. And having wrestled with that fact alone in the garden, he finally came to the conclusion that he would do not his own will, but the Father's will. And so he submitted to the Father and made his life a guilt offering, an offering for guilt that cleanses our conscience. And uh, the results follow. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. Uh, when people die, they die. But here's one whose days would be prolonged. And in, in direct reference to the resurrection, who would, he would continue to live and he would see his seed, those spiritual descendants of his who, uh, who have believed on him. And the will of the Lord, he says, will prosper in his hand. And the suffering, after the suffering of his soul, he will see light. That's another uh, addition that the Dead Sea Scrolls makes at this, at this point. The Hebrew text is, is very short. Scholars for years have known that something was missing because uh, the meter is not exact and is poetry and, and there's, a, there's a beat that's dropped off of the text and all the text is he will see and no object is there. Apparently it, it got lost somewhere in translation in transmission. And the Dead Sea Scroll fills it in for us. He will see lights. A wonderful, again, uh, reference to the resurrection. And he will be satisfied by the knowledge of him. By knowing him, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the, the many. That's the word for an inheritance. It brings to mind Paul's uh, thought in Ephesians that we are Jesus' inheritance. We're what he got out of his suffering. And we think, my, he didn't get much at all. But we have to understand how much he loves us and how much he wanted us. He wanted us more than anything else in the world. And he was willing to go to hell in order to secure uh, a relationship with us. Therefore, I will give him a portion or an inheritance in the many, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Uh, he turns victims, those that have been victimized by controlling habits, by addictions, he sets them free because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's a reference to the two malefactors, the two criminals that were crucified with him. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, remember Jesus' words from the cross? Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're, uh, what they're doing. What he accomplished for you and me is life. Life. You see, eternal life is not uh, something that uh, begins when we die. It begins when we come into relationship with Christ. And we receive an eternal quality of life that goes on forever. The result of his suffering was twofold. He received life for himself, and he was able to grant life to us. And you know, I, I, this is a passage that I turn to very often. It's frequently quoted in the New Testament. Peter quotes it extensively. It must have been one of his favorite sections on those sad, sin-conscious days when I start thinking about what I've done and how badly I have performed and I remind myself that he was the sin bearer, that I am no longer responsible for my sin. 
He has paid the, paid the price. Carolyn, this last uh, summer while we were on sabbatical, was reading Margaret Truman's uh, biography of her father, Harry Truman, and uh, she read a section uh, to me about the time when he was in the, in the Blair house. Some of you remember that some terrorists broke into the, his house and tried to gun him down. And a Secret Service agent took the bullet that was intended for Truman, and he died. And Truman said, it's a strange thing, you know, he said, knowing that I'm alive because someone died. I'll never forget him. And I hope that's true of us. It's a strange thing knowing that I can live because someone died. I'll never forget him. A number of years ago, uh, I made an acquaintance with a young man. Uh, this is back in California. I, I met him in, uh, in jail. He was throwing grapefruits at uh, police cars. Uh, his family ran a, uh, had a grapefruit orchard. And he would stand in among the trees and hurl grapefruit at police cars as they passed. And then he would dash for the house and he got caught. And they took him down to juvie, and I uh, went down to see him. I'd had some contact with him a little bit before. I knew something of his circumstances. His, his father died, and his mother remarried. And then his mother died, and his father remarried, and so he had two step-parents. And uh, he wasn't particularly uh, neglected. It's just that they didn't understand Jay. He had a lot of problems. He was in, in difficulty with the law almost from the beginning. Very talented, bright young man, quite an athlete, but he just never could get his life together. And uh, when he would get in trouble at home, he would come down to my office and sleep in the attic. Believe it or not, there was a crawlway that he could get into from the outside, and he would sleep up in the attic over my office. And uh, one day I walked into my office, and it, my desk was just trashed. There, was, there were pieces of... Uh, of tile all over the place, ceiling tile and, and dirt. And I looked up in the ceiling, and there was this huge hole up there. And I knew exactly what had happened. Jay had fallen through the ceiling. He'd been walking on the joists and fell through. And, and uh, my first thought was, I'm going to have to find him and make him pay for that. But I talked it over with some friends, and we decided, no, one way we can get through to this kid is to take care of the damage and uh, we, can, we can tell him it's okay because, you know, it wasn't intentional. Let's, let's do it for him. So we it didn't come out of my pocket. The story would be better if it did. But uh, we, we paid for it, and we fixed the ceiling. And then I went out to find Jay, and I couldn't locate him. I went to his house, would ring a doorbell, and he, would, he wouldn't come to the door. And I went to school trying to find him, and he'd duck out of class and, Finally, one day, I was sitting in my office, and I looked out in the parking lot, and I saw his little Volkswagen pull in the parking lot. So I took out after him. He jumped in his car and started around the building. The, the driveway went all the way around the building, so I ran through the building to the other side and stood right out in the middle of the driveway like this, so he'd have to run over me and, and stopped him, and I went around to his window, and for a moment, he wouldn't even roll his window down. I think he thought I was going to punch him or something. And... Uh, I tapped on the window like this, and finally rolled the window down, and I said, Jay, I've been looking for you. He said, I'll bet you have. And I said, uh, come here, I want to show you something. He said, I'll bet you do. And I took him by the arm, and I brought him into the office, and for a minute or two, he wouldn't look up. And then he looked up, and the first thing he said is, how much do I owe you? And I said, not a thing, Jay, not a thing. 
We love you, and we want you to know that the damage has been paid for. Now, I don't know to this day whether Jay ever received Christ, but there was a real softening in his heart from that, that moment on. And uh, I, I sense the same thing happens to us. You know, you and I have fallen through God's ceiling. We have desecrated his universe. And uh, the defilement is all around us. We have trashed our lives and the lives of others. And there's no way we can repair the damage. We've done an infinite amount of damage. But uh, he comes to us in a passage like this, and he reminds us of his unspeakable love. He loves us while we were yet sinners. And it's, and it's that that breaks our heart. It's that that softens us and draws us to him. Amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, should die for me. Let's pray. Father, we come to this passage, and it strips away all of our defenses. We come prepared to uh, put our best foot forward and remind you of how well we've done, and, and then we're brought face to face with the enormity of our sin and the infinite damage that we have done. And we have nothing to say. There's nothing about us that, uh, that will render you favorable to us. But uh, we know that uh, all of our sin, all of our wickedness, every evil thought, every terrible action that we've taken against others, all of that was laid upon our Lord Jesus. And he paid the price. And how dearly he paid that price. And uh, when we see that, Lord, that, that, uh, that dying love poured out for us, it makes us respond in, in love for him. Thank you for, for going all the way for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.